Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 26 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, August the 10th. First, I talked to Jeff Stringer, the Chief Operating Officer for Aussie travel technology startup Traveller. Traveller, founded by Simon and Lani Tehenepi, the creators of the Bali Bible, is preparing for rapid expansion into global destinations with its first-of-its-kind platform in the tech travel sector. And then I talked to economist Saul Eslake, looking at the Turnbull government's corporate tax cuts package, now going through Parliament, and whether it would actually help the economy. But first, let's talk to Jeff Stringer. Jeff Stringer, tell us about Traveller. Traveller was born um, out of the desire from the the founders to create a platform which, I suppose, offers an end-to-end experience for the traveller. So currently... Um, in, in looking at sort of the challenges of, of trying to plan your trip and trying to fulfil and book and have that have the experience for the whole cycle, you can't do it all in one place. Um, so what Traveller does is it brings brings together the ability to to go through that dream phase, to to plan your trip, but then to take your your, your planned trip and book it all in that one platform without leaving. Um, but then once you're actually then experiencing your trip, to continue to share share your trip to inspire others to to take up some of the bits of the trip that you've done um, and create a, a sort of a, a virtuous circle which which just keeps fulfilling for other travellers who can then sort of 
see your experiences, pick bits that they want to do of that and create their own trips and create their own marketing and, and sort of travel content. So this is all on a website that's shared? It's all, yeah, it's all on a website that's shared. So um, what what has happened to date is that the 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 initial product is called the Bali Bible, which is, has been running for eight years. Um, that that has created a, a following um, of, uh, sort of 80,000 registered users who already participate in, I suppose, the, the planning and the dreaming and the sharing phase. Um, and and it's been really powerful in that regard. What um, we haven't done with Traveller to date is turned it into a, a platform where they can then actually book their trip and have the whole experience in one place. So um, that that next the next phase of travel that we're now moving into is about building that that booking platform so that actually the I suppose pretty much our, our model is sort of we build it um, so that travellers will come to the to the platform to the website and then once they're there we give them no reason to leave. They want to stay um, because we give them the opportunity to manage that entire experience all in one place. So what, is it, what does the website actually offer them? Um, well, so, in, so I suppose to, to step through, I suppose we're, we're launching New Zealand shortly. Um, we, we will put into that New Zealand um, website will be about 24,000 listings of accommodation, um, eating options, activities, things to see and do in New Zealand. Um, and people will be able to see, well, I suppose, you know, one, once we start getting um, the audience going on that website, um, what other travellers are doing, what's popular, um, what sort of different trips people are organising. They can be inspired by seeing you know, what, I suppose, like-minded travellers um, to them are doing. Um, but then once they've done that, they can, they can pick and choose those pieces and then, then book them as well without actually having to leave that site. And so we'll become sort of the... The, the, the traveller platform becomes sort of the aggregator of the other travel aggregators. So um, all the, the flight prices, the accommodation prices come into the travel platform and people can actually select from within that platform. I see, I see. And so this is all totally bringing technology to the concept of travel. Yes, yeah. Um, and using, I suppose, using, using the power, isn't the power, I suppose, of, of building, building all those different pieces... Um, but then wrapping them up into one, and you know, I, I say it's a neat bundle from a technology perspective. I imagine it's a very, very complex bundle, um, but it's trying to make that experience as seamless as possible. Um, you know, the, our founders, they, they were sort of going through a process two or three years back with the Bali Bible where they said, we've built this amazing resource, but actually even ourselves, when we want to then go book, we have to go through 30 or 40 different websites to find what's the best price, um, for the the time that I want to go there, how how, how does that help me? I sort of I'm I'm helped through one you know through two or three sections of the process, but I'm not helped through the final stage. So how can we actually solve that? Um, bring all those pieces together so that you you basically you you can manage everything in one place. So it's all one website helping people for travelling. Yes, absolutely. Now, so tell me, I mean, how how does how does traveller make money? Um, all right, so, so the, the model is, so I suppose we've, we've probably got um, three, three tiers of, of where we make money. So in the, in the booking phase, um, we would be, like, like all, I suppose, aggregators in that space, getting the, the clip of the ticket off any bookings that, um, that our travellers make. So that, that's one part of it. We um, can work with, work with businesses to um, advertise um, in that space and to 
um, to promote to promote their products to sort of to you know to, to be more high profile on the pages. Um, what what I suppose is a, is one of the really interesting and not necessarily a byproduct of what we've done, but you know, the the sole focus on going into this was solving problems for travellers. But in the way that the architecture was built in the website and how people, I suppose, showed interest in activities or accommodation or restaurants is that we're able to gather really rich data about what's popular, what's trending. So, Jeff, what you're doing is you're compiling data on customers and when they come back, you can give them exactly what they want. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So, you know, so we can we can work with businesses to say, you know, if you've if you've got a... Um, you know, if you've got a gap in your accommodation coming up, we actually know 10 people who were looking at your accommodation yesterday for that period of time. We're not going to give you their details, but we can um, we can reach out to them because they've reached out to us to say we're actually interested in this accommodation at this period of time. We can reach out to them and say, would you like a special offer? Um, so it's a it's it's almost like as I said, it wasn't it wasn't one of the intents when we originally set up and started building the platform, but the way that the the way that the data comes together, it becomes an asset um, which is useful for us. It's useful for businesses and government, but it's actually very useful for the traveller because they can then be avail themselves of, of deals and specials which they may not have otherwise become aware of. Indeed, indeed, and that puts that puts the company in a very strong position for return customers and return business. Exactly, and you know, and that, that's I suppose you know our our model is we just want to build, um, and you know the the. The CEO, he says, I just want to build the best platform for travellers. If we do that, they'll come to it. They will share, they will stay, they will enjoy themselves. And our, our sole focus is on just making it the best experience for them because the view is that if you get that right, um, that they will effectively look after the rest because they will then start doing all the things that we want them to do. I understand, I understand. Now, your own background, you come from Lonely Planet, is that right? Yes, I had um, 18 years at Lonely Planet from '95 uh, to 2013, so through a fairly tumultuous period. Right. Okay. Okay. So, what what skills do you bring? Um, so, so I suppose I have a, a very good understanding of um, of how to scale a business. So, when when I started at Lonely Planet, um, I think there were about 75 employees. Um, at some point, it got up to about 500. That's not the aspiration of travel that we get to that size, but I know how to how to you know, expand. You know, we're, we're a content game, effectively. Um, I know how to how to you know, expand and scale content requirements. Um, one of the one of the, the great things about Traveller is you know, we're only in two or three destinations at the moment, which means that the world is sort of in front of us in terms of where we choose to go to next. Um, Lonely Planet was obviously even by the time I got there was a much more mature products so you had to be much more targeted in in where you chose to sort of in, invest your content dollars yeah, indeed indeed and i have to ask you this i mean and thinking again of lonely planet i mean you're very much based in australia would you actually take traveler to other markets absolutely and that, and that's that's the key focus so i mean i think you know where where we're at at the moment we have a very strong brand presence um, with with the Bali Bible product, which was their sort of their their heritage product, very strong brand presence here, and actually also in Indonesia. Um, what we're what we're looking to do as we expand into other markets over the next twelve to eighteen months is um, obviously using that we want to we want to 
expanding the markets where there is still a strong Australian interest because that's obviously our, our current foundation. But um, going into markets where there is a strong international interest. So um, over the next year, um, our sort of our next, we're, we're launching to New Zealand, which is obviously also a very strong Australian market, but very strong in the US and the UK as well. Um, and later in the year, Sri Lanka and Dubai. Um, Sri Lanka is probably a bit more of a, a heartland traveller product, which is, you know, is sort of a, an island destination um, with, you know, where, where travel can be a sort of a challenging adventure. But Dubai is, I suppose, an opportunity for us to not just move into a, a bigger and a sort of a more international market, but also to take the travel brand to quite a different destination right. um, and see how it adapts to that destination and what we learn from that. So all, a lot of this is about learning as we, as we experiment along the way and then adjusting as we go. Well, Jeff Stringer, that is fascinating and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's been great, Leon. And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Well, Saul Eslake, the government looks like it's going to be bringing up its uh, tax cuts package again through the uh, parliament and uh, there's every chance it won't get through uh, because one nation is resolved to oppose it. Uh, what's your view about this? Well, I think it's unlikely that the government will have any more success in legislating the remaining tranche of its corporate tax cuts, that is for companies with annual turnover exceeding $50 million. I think those who in the Senate have been opposed to the government's proposals, not just Labor, the Greens and One Nation, but more importantly, the other minor parties, Centre Alliance, the former Nick Xenophon grouping and independent South Australian Senator Tim Storer, are likely to be more resolute in their opposition after the recent federal by-elections than they were before. So I think the government will make one last effort to get these over the line, but they'll then be faced with a decision as to whether to take them to the next election, which didn't work out quite so well for them in 2016, or abandon them and seek to use the money that would otherwise have gone to these tax cuts in some other way that they will hope will have more electoral appeal. Uh, but there's a view, there's a view out there uh, they might have to repackage it maybe to uh, uh, perhaps, um, uh, you know, give, do it for tax cuts for small businesses, maybe. Well, that's certainly been suggested. I mean, this does illustrate that the government hasn't had a lot of strings to its economic policy bow beyond tax cuts. They were successful in getting the personal income tax cuts that were the centrepiece of the most recent federal budget through the parliament just before it rose ahead of all of these by-elections. Uh, and that doesn't seem to have had much of an impact either on the economy or on opinion polling. Uh, it is, of course, early days in terms of reading the impact on the economy, and the first tranche of the personal income tax cuts won't be felt by most of those intended to benefit from it until July next year when they file their tax returns. And the other 
two components of the personal income tax package uh, probably at least two elections away. So perhaps one shouldn't expect to see much discernible impact from those. But in my view, the case for cutting the company tax rate was always fairly weak and the government didn't make its case particularly strongly or compellingly either to parliamentarians who weren't persuaded or to the broader community. And that's because the case is, in fact, not very strong. There isn't a lot of evidence from overseas countries who have cut their corporate tax rates that it does do much to boost economic activity, employment, wages or innovation. Uh, most recently, people are pointing to the US as an example, but in reality, uh, there doesn't seem to have been any lift in business investment since the Trump administration's tax cuts came in. The one element of the US tax cuts that might have some positive impact on business investment, the so-called instant asset write-off for all companies, as we would call it in Australia, isn't part of what the federal coalition government here in Australia has been offering. And much of the impetus that the US economy does seem to be getting in the second and third quarters of 2018 is, I, I think, very temporary in nature and coming more through uh, personal consumption spending as a result of the personal income tax cuts than the corporate tax cuts. Rather, the corporate tax cuts appear to have uh, stimulated another round of share buybacks, uh, which don't do anything for either the economy or for ordinary workers. And wages growth, though it is accelerating marginally in the US, is, I think, more the result of the fact that the unemployment rate is close to a 40-year low than it is any obvious flow on from the tax cuts in other countries like the UK and Canada, which have been cutting corporate taxes for much longer, there's no evidence at all that they've done anything to boost employment growth or business investment or productivity or innovation. And the government hasn't really been able to present a persuasive case that that would be the result here in Australia. Indeed, we've had quite a lot of investment over the last decade without having had cuts in corporate taxes. Now, the suggestion is that if the government can't get the final tranche of its corporate tax cuts for big companies through the Senate, they might, as people say, double down by accelerating the proposed reductions in the tax rate paid by smaller businesses. I don't think there's a very good argument in favour of that either. Indeed, I'm as opposed to preferential tax rates for small businesses as I am for, to a cut in the corporate tax rate more broadly. And again, if you look at the evidence, I don't think it's difficult to see why. Uh, people on the coalition side of politics often like to refer to small business as being the engine room of the economy. Um, it is true that Businesses employing fewer than 20 employees account for, most recently, about 44% of total private sector employment. But that percentage has actually gone down over the past decade. Since 2009-10, small businesses, that is those employing fewer than 20 employees, have accounted for just 4.5% of the increase in private sector employment, whereas large companies which employ about 32% of the private sector workforce have accounted for 62% of the increase 
increase in employment. Likewise, ABS figures show that small businesses are less likely to engage in any of the four different types of innovation that ABS surveys recognize than businesses with 20 to 200 employees or 200 employees or more. Uh, there's no evidence that since the preferential tax rates for small businesses were first introduced in the 2015-16 financial year, that they've done anything to promote employment growth or innovation in small businesses. Uh, and there's no reason to believe that they would. In my view, if you're going to use the tax system to preferentially treat certain types of businesses because you think it will stimulate employment or innovation, then the sensible thing to do would be to give tax breaks to new businesses rather than small ones. Now, of course, most new businesses will be small, but there are three good reasons for focusing on new businesses rather than small ones. First of all, new businesses are much more likely to create employment and engage in innovation than small businesses. Second, since there are far fewer new businesses than there are small businesses, providing preferential tax treatment to them doesn't involve the same cost to revenue. You don't have to put other people's taxes up as much in order to make up for the revenue foregone through these concessions as you do if you give concessions to every small business in the country. And third, there are no perverse incentive effects. That is, a new business can't prevent itself from getting older at some point, whereas we know that many small businesses do choose to stay below the threshold, whether it's employment or turnover, at which they cease to become eligible for whatever tax breaks are going. So in my view, if the government is to use the tax system to preferentially treat any kind of business, it should be for new businesses, not small ones. But unfortunately, the coalition, like many others, seem to think there's something inherently more noble about running a small business than working for a big one or indeed a government agency. Uh, that's almost an article of religious faith for the conservative side of politics, even though, like many article, other articles of religious faith, uh, there's absolutely no evidence for it. It's just something they choose to believe. And uh, you would say then that if the government was to bring in tax cuts, it would be more effective for the economy to bring in personal income tax cuts and add to the ones that they've already brought in. Uh, yes, I think that's right. Uh, or to bring forward some of the ones they've already proposed. I mean, unlike the case which the government has sought to make for cutting the corporate tax rate, I think there is some evidence that warrants a cut in personal income taxes. First of all, there haven't been any cuts in personal income tax of any magnitude since the ones that the Howard government promised and the Rudd government delivered in 2008-2009. Uh, second, and partly for that reason, the share of household taxable income that is collected in personal income taxes risen quite steadily over the last eight or nine years to be at its highest level since 2006. And third, since we know that one of the major constraints on economic growth in Australia at the moment is the weak growth of household income, which is in turn largely the result of persistently sluggish growth in wages, uh, personal income tax cuts can, at least for a period, substitute for the wage rise that ordinary working Australians aren't getting. And we know that given how low the personal saving rate is, again, that increases in uh, 
household disposable income or tax cuts delivered to low to middle income households are much more likely to be spent than, for example, cuts in corporate taxes that are much more likely to flow to shareholders in the form of dividend payments or uh, reduct or share buybacks. And in the case of overseas, foreign companies uh, to be paid overseas rather than necessarily invested in Australia. So I think there's a better case for personal income tax cuts than there is for corporate income tax tax cuts. And as I've been arguing, there's absolutely no evidence at all to suggest that giving even more preferential tax breaks to small business will have any positive impact on employment growth, investment, economic activity or innovation. And indeed, but if you reverse it and have personal tax cuts, it would have more a greater effect on the economy. Well, I think it would have a more more positive impact on personal consumption spending, which is about 60% of GDP. Uh, obviously, the impact would be small, given that the budgetary situation doesn't offer scope for giving large personal income tax cuts. But if the government does want to give away the roughly $32 billion over the next 10 years that the outstanding tranche of its proposed corporate tax cuts would have cost in terms of revenue foregone, then I think they'd be better off using it for personal income tax cuts than for giving an even bigger preferential tax break to small businesses. Well, Saul Leslie, it's always a delight to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. That's been a pleasure. Talk to you again next month. So what's happening in the news? Well, Elon Musk says he's considering taking Tesla private in a tweet that stunned investors. Privatising Tesla would ease pressure on the money-losing automaker and would be the biggest deal of its kind. And considering taking Tesla private at $420, funding secure, Tesla tweeted. He'd later explain more in a blog post making it clear that he feels constrained running Tesla as a public company. Taking it private would allow him to manage it more on his own terms. First, a final decision has not yet been made, but the reason for doing this is all about creating the environment for Tesla to operate best, Musk said in the post. He said Tesla is subject to wild swings in its share price. The relentless criticism from short sellers, he said, are a big distraction for Tesla employees. Being a public company also requires Tesla to publicly report quarterly earnings, and this, he said, puts enormous pressure on Tesla to make decisions that may be right for a given quarter, but not necessarily right for the long term. The unanswered question is how Musk, who owns almost 20% of the company, would be able to come up with the $66 billion required to complete the transaction. Tesla trades at $420 a share, which means it would have an enterprise value of about $82 billion, including debt. Analysts say securing the funding for a negative cash flow business, which has lost money every year since it went public, and it's been burning through billions of dollars of cash to sort out its production issues, would be unlikely. And Amcor will transfer its main share market listing to the New York Stock Exchange in its US $6.8 billion all-script buyout of US packaging group Bemis Company as it elevates its position on the global stage to become the world's largest plastic packaging group. Amcor will farewell the Australian Securities Exchange as its primary home. Amcor will still trade on the ASX, but only through the chest depository interests. And the Reserve Bank of Australia has kept official interest rates unchanged at 1.5% in August, extending its current streak of policy inertia into a 22nd consecutive meeting. 
The last time the RBA moved rates was in August 2016, and market pricing for a full 25 basis point increase has now extended all the way to 2020. And that was reflected in the latest statement from the RBA, which looks set to keep rates on hold for the foreseeable future. And on a seasonally adjusted basis, the ANZ Australian Job Advertisement Series has bounced 1.5% in July, nearly reversing the 1.7% fall recorded last month. On an annual basis, growth ticked up to 7.3% in July versus 6.9% in June. In trend terms, job ads eased 0.2% for the month in July, the first monthly fall in nearly four years. And there's been a clear slowdown in the monthly trend growth since February this year. Now, Malcolm Turnbull has declined to say if he will take his company tax cut policy to the next election. Speaking on the ABC 7.30 program on Monday night, the Prime Minister said he would try again to negotiate with the Senate crossbench when Parliament resumes next week to win their support to cut the company tax rate from 30 to 25%. But he declined to say if he would campaign for the cuts at the next election if he fails with the crossbenchers. Labor has campaigned furiously against the proposal, saying it will only benefit the big banks, multinationals and the big end of town, which includes the independently wealthy Malcolm Turnbull. Speaking after the recent round of by-elections, where Labor held on to two critical marginal lower house seats, opposition leader Bill Shorten said the result meant voters had rejected Mr Turnbull's rotten corporate tax cuts, as he puts it. The results, combined with the difficulties of the on-and-off-again response from One Nation's Pauline Hanson, whose votes are critical, have spooked some government MPs who think the government should rethink the policy. And the Royal Commission into Financial Services has heard that Australia's $2.6 trillion superannuation industry is shrouded in darkness due to a lack of regulation of the conduct of the trustees running funds. The criticism of the lack of regulation of the sector was delivered by counsel assisting the Royal Commission, Michael Hodge QC, at the start of two weeks of hearings into misconduct within the sector. He pointed out the gap created by the way the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority and the Australian Securities Investments Commission regulated the sector. APRA saw itself as a prudential regulator and not a conduct regulator, Mr Hodge said. On the other hand, ASIC was only responsible for the conduct of trustees of superannuation funds under the Corporations Act. It was not responsible for monitoring conduct that was in breach of the Superannuation Industry Act. The Royal Commission will spend the next two weeks hearing evidence about misconduct and conduct falling below community expectations within Australia's superannuation sector. Thirteen funds have been called to give evidence in regards to governance and administration of funds and potential misconduct. And banks and wealth managers could end up paying out more than $850 million in compensation to customers who were charged for financial services that were never provided, according to ASIC. As the Royal Commission put superannuation under the microscope, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission said there could be an almost quadrupling in the sector's bill for a scandal known as fees for no service. AMP, ANZ, Commonwealth Bank, National Australia Bank and Westpac have so far paid $222.3 million in refunds to hundreds of thousands of people who were charged for advice they did not receive. But ASIC said it was now looking at the fees for no service issue across smaller institutions and that several wealth managers had set aside provisions for large future compensation payouts. If all of the provisions are paid out in full, ASIC said the full compensation costs could be more than $850 million. Now, the smaller institutions that have identified potential failings in this area include 
Bendigo and Adelaide Bank's planning arm, Bankvic, State Super Financial Services and Yellow Brick Road. And the Australian Securities and Investments Commission will, for the first time, have enhanced powers to embed its enforcement staff into the major banks and wealth manager AMP as part of an expanded armoury to fight white-collar crime. The corporate cop will have its bus budget boosted by more than $70 million as the regulator pushes it back against claims at the Financial Services Royal Commission that it had been asleep at the wheel in the fight against corporate misconduct. In what has been described as a new supervisory refocus, ASIC will be empowered to place dedicated staff within the big four banks, ANZ, Westpac, Commonwealth and National Australia Banks, to directly monitor governance and compliance. Embattled wealth manager AMP, which stands accused of charging fees for no service and lying to ASIC, is also included in the $8 million budget as part of the crackdown on unlawful and unethical behaviour. The expanded ASIC powers come after a lengthy review by newly appointed ASIC chairman James Shipton. The new measure also includes $26.2 million to help ASIC pursue serious misconduct actions against well-funded litigants and $6.8 million for a special task force to identify and pursue failings to large listed companies where ASIC staff could be deployed to investigate potential misconduct. Whistleblowers who call out unlawful and unethical behaviour in the financial services sector will also receive greater protections, with $6.6 million provided to enhance the federal government's whistleblower protection laws. In addition to the appointment of James Shipton as ASIC chairman, the federal government appointed a second deputy chair, Daniel Crennan QC, to specifically focus on enforcement. And hopes of a swift end to Australia's climate policy paralysis have been dashed after the Turnbull government refused to capitulate to the state's appeal for compromise on the landmark energy plan, including their demand that accelerated emissions reductions be made easier. Environment and Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg has accused the states of posturing. He says the government has sought to address their concerns. Political tensions are high in the days ahead of a highly anticipated meeting of energy ministers in Sydney on Friday, where the fate of the National Energy Guarantee will be decided. Labor governments in Queensland and Victoria and the ACT Labor Greens government held cabinet meetings on Monday to finalise their positions. The three governments hold serious doubts over the policy, chief among them, that the 26% emissions cut to be opposed on the electricity sector are weak, too difficult to change, and will undermine their own more ambitious renewable energy targets. Federal Labor has proposed an electricity sector target of 45% in line with its national carbon abatement goal. And Labor states are also reluctant to agree to a policy framework on Friday for fear right-wing federal coalition backbenchers may seek to amend it later. And Australians are running down their savings to make their ends meet, according to the latest edition of ME Bank's biannual Household Financial Comfort Report. The report shows that more than half the households, at 53% in June 2018, said the cost of necessities was their biggest financial concern. That's up seven points from the last report. Comfort with short-term cash savings had fallen 3% to 4.93 out of 10 during the first half of 2018. That's the lowest level in a couple of years. More Australians are also overspending. Households who typically spend all their income and more increased 3 points to 11% during the six months to June. It also found that households' confidence to raise money for an emergency had dropped 3 points below the average since the survey began. The estimated amount that Australians are saving each month decreased by just over 10% during the first half of 2018. And there was also an increase in the number expecting they would not be able to meet their required minimum payments on their debts. And West Farmers, 
has finally freed itself of coal after selling its remaining stake in the Mingala mine to New Hope for $860 million. New Hope has loomed as a logical buyer of West Farmer's stake in the Hunter Valley Thermal Coal Mine since it acquired Rio Tinto's 40% stake in September 2015. And we're in the profit reporting season, and the reports are coming in this week. Commonwealth Bank has reported a lower cash profit for the first time since the financial crisis as a series of one-off costs from regulatory penalties and the Royal Commission pushed up expenses and higher funding costs pressured margins in the second half. CBA's cash profit from continuing operations of $9.23 billion for the year to June 30 was down 4.8%. AMP's first half net profit has plunged 74% from $445 million to $115 million on massive compensation and legal costs related to its fee-for-no-service scandal. TAPCOR reported lower-than-expected annual earnings, which rose 37.6% to $246.2 million, but that figure was below analyst forecasts of $252 million. This compares with earnings of $178.9 million in financial year 2017, prior to the completion of the merger with Tats Group late last year. Transurban's annual net profits more than doubled to $468 million. And HSBC Holdings posted a small increase in first-half pre-tax profit as rising expenses from investments in a new growth strategy and a US $765 million settlement for alleged mis-selling of US mortgage securities eight into higher revenues. And that's it for this week. And next week we have a great interview with Alec Gardner from a data analysis firm called Alpha Zeta. It's a great interview. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBLZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.